Welcome to the South Carolina State Library's podcast, Library Voices SC. I'm Curtis Rogers, Communications Director, and today I'm pleased to have with us in the podcast studio, Dr. John Navin. Dr. Navin is a professor of history at Coastal Carolina University here in South Carolina, where he teaches early American history and conducts research on community, race, and violence in colonial America. He holds a master's degree in American studies from Boston College and a PhD in history from Brandeis University. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. and. Uh, Thanks for considering my book for your podcast. Well, it's great to have you here, and it'll be interesting to talk about this um, fascinating book. Uh, but first of all, before we talk about the book, tell us a little bit how you got interested in early American history. Well, I grew up about seven miles outside of Boston in Watertown, Massachusetts, a town founded in 1630 as mm -hmm. part of the first Puritan uh, wave. Um, and uh, when you think about the area that I'm in, uh, just you know, within a very short drive from my home, uh, we've got places like Lexington and Concord. Mm -hmm. uh, we've got Boston, of course, with the Freedom Trail and everything else in Boston. Uh, my family would vacation down in Plymouth, Massachusetts, mm -hmm. yep. a little further north. We've got Salem, Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're into labor history, you know the story of Lowell, Massachusetts. Uh, mm -hmm. I worked in that town. So basically, uh, I was surrounded by history. Historical mm -hmm. markers were just as common as street signs, it seemed. Mm -hmm. And so I, I grew up in this very rich environment. And uh, I actually was an English major as an undergraduate. Um, but I migrated to history um, by way of a, an American studies degree and then, of course, uh, doctorate in history at Brandeis. So mm -hmm. uh, it's been quite a journey, but I ended up doing history full time, and I love it. Well, as you're talking, I grew up in Glastonbury, Connecticut. And so I know exactly what you're talking about when you talk about all of that rich kind of history. And it's a very different history. We moved to South Carolina when I was 12. So there's so much more focus on Civil War history in the South and in the North, Revolutionary War and colonial America tends to be more of the focus. That's true. And ironically, uh, there should be um, just as much or more focus on the Revolutionary War in the South, particularly in South Carolina, considering that some of the most important battles mm -hmm. took place down here. And um, the kind of obsession with the Civil War tends to uh, blind people to that fact mm -hmm. that South Carolina played an incredibly important part in the revolution. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. And when you said Concord, I thought back to Concord because <laughs> you know you want to you hear it in that in that Massachusetts accent and and it it sticks with you so um, so th uh, your recent book is titled The Grim Years Settling South Carolina 1670 to 1720 so how did um, how did this book come about how did you want to tell this story well it's interesting how um, historians choose the topics they're going to research and write about. For me, um, my work tends to, the springboard is, is often a very simple question, uh, something very basic that anybody might ask. Uh, for example, my um, dissertation uh, up at Brandeis was 800 pages long, and that all started with me 
looking at a map from the 1600s and seeing a town out in uh, what would have been termed Indian country. They mm-hmm. they showed Indian uh, villages all around it and uh, the town of Lancaster, um, which by, back then was named Nashway, right in the middle of that. Uh, and I looked, I said, well, why the heck are those people out there? Mm-hmm. And that led me into a very big piece of research. Um, in this particular case, um, I looked at a an advertisement uh, for a runaway slave or a number of runaway slaves um, in old Charleston newspapers. Mm. And it said, uh, if caught, if captured, uh, bring them to the Charleston workhouse. Mm-hmm. And I wondered, what is this Charleston workhouse and why are they bringing slaves there? Mm-hmm. And it turns out that the Charleston workhouse was started as a workhouse kind of on the English model. But uh, immediately after the workhouse began operation, uh, the Stonewall Rebellion occurred. Mm. And so the assembly decided that runaway slaves, if you didn't know their owner, the place to send them would be to the workhouse where they could be held and also be punished um, for running away. Mm So that got me into a long, long study um, on the Charleston Workhouse that I am still involved in. This mm. has been 10 years wow. of research. Um, I ran into Richard Brown, the at the time, the new director of the USC Press at a conference mm-hmm. at the State Archives. And he said, what are you working on? And I said, a book on the Charleston Workhouse. And he asked to see what I'd done. And when I sent him... Uh, 15 chapters, uh, he said, well, this is too big uh, for us to deal with, um, <laughs> but I see that you've done a lot with early South Carolina. Are you interested in doing something that would be just the first 50 years? And having done the research, mm-hmm. um, or much of the research already, mm-hmm. I said, well, I can do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's really the genesis of this book. I didn't set out to write uh, an early history, but I was researching that period in the course of doing my work on, on the Workhouse book. And so I took a lot of that material, a lot of that research, and then uh, went and did more research, added to it, and uh, developed a, a theme, a framework for this narrative. And thus, we have a book that's not nearly as uh, long as uh, in terms of uh, wording uh, words as I expect the Workhouse book will one day be, Mm -hmm. but I think this is um, a pretty succinct account of that first half century. And I I will mention, we will have a link to the University of South Carolina Press website for this book so that folks can learn a lot more about it and, of course, order it if they would like a copy. Um, One of the things that I will describe to folks is the book cover. It It looks like one of those really, really old maps. And uh, can you describe to folks what uh, this actually is a map of on the cover of the book? Certainly. This is a portion of what is known as the crisp map of 1711. If you happen to be in the area of the state archives, they have an exhibit right now on the revolution of 1719, the end of proprietary rule in South Carolina. And they have an enlarged version of this full map. Um, The cover of this book shows 
basically the fortress, if you will, the, the town of Charlestown, which was a walled city, and it was confined to um, the edge of the, uh, the peninsula on the edge of the Cooper River. Of course, Charleston now stretches uh, fully between the Ashley and the Cooper. If you go look at this original map, the, the crisp map, you'll see that um, there'll be depictions actually of five different areas showing South Carolina in di- different perspectives as well as showing some indication of its existence in um, relation to the Caribbean. So you get the real flavor for uh, the development of South Carolina and its commercial connections. And one of the other things that, that pops out when I look at this cover is the title. I mean, you know, it's it's not a very upbeat title. <laughs> you think about, you know, 1670 to 1720. I would think it was grim, but, you know, how how did you or did the press come up with that title? No, that was my title. Okay. Actually, the, the press initially wanted to call the book Settling South Carolina, and, and I told them that that just didn't convey um, the message of this book. And in to a large part or uh, to a great extent, this book is a description of the conditions under which settlers lived. Um, and in, I should just mention as a separate group than the settlers, the Native Americans and the enslaved Africans, who I don't think rightfully we should refer to as settlers. Um, these people uh, lived during a time when uh, conditions that were typically bad uh, for the beginning of a colony, um, any colony in its early years tends to uh, struggle. Um, those struggles were exacerbated uh, because of the actions of people in South Carolina, of whites in South Carolina. Mm-hmm. And uh, those actions didn't affect just the whites. They affected the Native Americans and the enslaved Africans, of course. And so when you look at it as a whole, this period, um, it's a period of suffering. It's a period of uh, bad decisions. It's a period of um, unbounded greed on the part of some. um, And basically, when a colony should be struggling to uh, get on its feet and uh, make life better for everybody in the colony. Actually, South Carolina was seeing uh, things go in the other direction in in many ways, Mm. and the book talks about that. It's divided into chapters that talk about, um, first, Barbados, Mm -hmm. because South Carolina's Barbadian heritage plays a key role in the way the colony develops. And actually, I remember seeing something on uh, educational television. There's uh, a series about the the Barbados connection with South Carolina. Right. Bar- uh, South Carolina has been referred to as the colony of a colony. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe that was in um, Black Majority, uh, Wood's book. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... I start out with a, a uh, discussion of Barbados and then move on to conditions in South Carolina um, and how the colonists come to 
develop a colony that's uh, very different than the model laid out by the Lord's proprietors who were given the initial grant by King Charles II. Mm-hmm. Um, and other uh, chapters you've got, uh, chapter two is Carolina, three is Paradise Lost, four is Dreadful Visitations. That's really intriguing. What's that chapter about? <laughs> well, the chapters prior to that uh, really are talking about decisions that people made and uh, migration and, and so forth. That particular chapter, Dreadful Visitations, is talking about environmental disasters, if you will. Um, it, it discusses uh, hurricanes and floods. It discusses uh, fires. Fires were a terrible problem for Colonial Charleston mm. and, and for virtually all the early colonial cities. All those darn candles they had to have. To <laughs> and building buildings of wood and uh, um, no real effective means of fighting fires. You know, a bucket of water mm-hmm. doesn't do much when your roof's on fire. Yep. But also that chapter discusses epidemics. Um, and so that chapter... Uh, the title, Dreadful Visitations, comes from um, a, a minister's description of what was going on. Um, and as this book points out, uh, South Carolina was a deadly place for m- many reasons. And the weather, uh, the climate, um, and the uh, microbes, uh, basically mm. the conditions down here that uh, not only uh, invited disease, but um, allowed them to, to breed and to multiply. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so overall, how would you kind of uh, classify this book as being different from other South Carolina history books? What, what's special about it that sets it aside? Well, if you were to go on a search engine and search for a book or works on colonial South Carolina, mm-hmm. early South Carolina, um, the period that I cover is referred to by many historians as the propri- proprietary era mm-hmm. or the proprietary period because the focus is on the Lord's proprietors and their relations with the colonists and then the revolution of 1719 when the colonists threw that off. I- in a sense, it's, it's a political story mm-hmm. in many ways. Um, if you ask the average person on the street about colonial South Carolina, uh, they'll say, well, it it had uh, rice plantations and uh, a lot of slaves, Mm -hmm. and they built nice mansions that we can visit some of them today, Mm -hmm. right? Well, this period that I'm writing about, the first 25 years from uh, 1670 to 1695, there was no rice crop. Mm. Rice wasn't introduced, so I wanted to... um, shed some light on what people were doing before this whole uh, rice culture and eventually the rice boom Mm -hmm. set in. Um, Also, I wanted to focus a lot of attention on people other than the names that you see in in all the books, the the famous people, the rich people, the key political people, the lord proprietors themselves. Um, what do we know about the women in the colony? What do we know about uh, what's going on with Native Americans in the colony? Mm-hmm. And what can we say about um, the enslaved Africans? We know that 
South Carolina had a large slave population. But one key question that this book addresses is, uh, was that inevitable? Uh, Why did South Carolina have this dependence on slave labor? Because if you consider the fact that for the first 25 years, there's no cash crop, Mm-hmm. Yet they bring Afri- enslaved Africans in on the very first boat, and the immigrants from Barbados are coming from an island where the plantation system has developed and been in effect for years. Pla- Barbados um, started planting sugar, the planters there started planting sugar in the 1640s. By 1680, there were twice as many blacks as whites on Barbados. Mm. When the migration to um, the Charleston area, to early South Carolina, occurs um, beginning in 1670, the key people, the, the most influential people, or what we might say the hegemonic group, were those Barbadians. So they had lived in an environment where you raised one crop for export using slave labor. And they brought that plan, that mindset or mentalite to South Carolina. Mm. And during the first 25 years where there was no cash crop, that plan, those hopes to replicate that did not die. They continued to look for a cash crop uh, to pursue that dream of setting up a plantation um, sort of a uh, system in South Carolina. Mm-hmm. And the people who came from England and from other parts of Europe who had not been slave owners, mm-hmm. who had not been raised in an environment where people used enslaved Africans or, in, or any type of slaves, you might think that they would have uh, caused this great interest in slavery to subside. They mm-hmm. might have been an ameliorating force Uh, given that they didn't depend on slaves, and that wouldn't have been their mindset. Mm -hmm. But as my book shows, just the opposite happened. They started seeing that people with slaves were in a better position to make money. They were in a better position to use these large land grants they got. Mm -hmm. And so they started to envy them, and they wanted to emulate them. And so you had, for example, French Huguenots come over, who clearly didn't come over to establish um, plantation slavery. Not at all. And yet we have letters from them where they reveal that they wished that they could have slaves like other people did, and and how can they use these lands? And I shouldn't single out the Huguenots. This was something that seemed to be uh, widespread among these early Um, English settlers and settlers from other uh, places in Europe. Mm -hmm. They saw slavery. They saw the potential profitability of slavery, Mm -hmm. even without a cash crop. And they said, I want to to own slaves too. Mm -hmm. So that by 1708, when the rice culture is really just starting, and it starts um, as upland rice, they don't even plant tidal rice to begin with. Mm -hmm. So you don't have the development of these big rice plantations until the 1720s and 30s and 40s. Mm -hmm. Um, Even in those very early days, uh, people are saying, I need slaves to harvest my timber. I need Mm -hmm. slaves to to help generate 
Um, uh, naval stores, pitch, turpentine, tar, resin, and so forth. Mm-hmm. I need slaves to tend my cattle and raise hogs that we are shipping uh, to Barbados. Mm-hmm. Um, in Barbados, land was so devoted to sugarcane, they wanted to import food. Mm. And so the connection between South Carolina and Barbados was one in which South Carolina was shipping all kinds of food products and timber product to Barbados. And then also, as I describe in the book, they're shipping slave labor. They're shipping enslaved Native Americans. Mm. This is a trade that begins in the 1680s where South Carolinians uh, are involved in the deerskin trade, the Indian trade, and very uh, soon um, a sinister new trade develops, and that is those same Native Americans they're looking to for deerskins, they basically persuade them to bring in um, members of other tribes Mm. that they can then ship to Barbados to be used as slave laborers. So a slave trade develops. And when one tribe becomes problematic for any reason, uh, the South Carolinians who are engaged in this trade will turn on that. So even their former allies will be victims of this Indian slave trade. And they preferred, the slave traders preferred women and children. And they sent these uh, Native Americans uh, not only to Barbados, but in the book I include a page that shows advertisements in the Boston newsletter Mm -hmm. around uh, 1708 to 1712, uh, listings of runaway Carolina slaves and Carolina slaves for sale. Mm. And they're almost all women and uh, young boys, uh, young uh, 12, 14 years old. and these are in Boston, Puritan Boston. Mm-hmm. Uh, when South Carolina helps North Carolina out during the, the Tuscarora War, uh, one of their main motivators is they're promised that they can take many thousands of captives, mm-hmm. Indian captives. So this Indian slave trade is pervasive, and most people don't understand that. Um, if you told the average person that South Carolina was exporting more Native Americans than Africans it imported before 1700, they probably wouldn't believe you. Right. I mean, it's not something you hear about really that much at all. Right. And if if you look at the the census data for 1708, blacks already outnumbered um, whites in the colony. But by 1710, there were also 1,500 Native American slaves in South Carolina, and that doesn't include the many that they sent to Barbados. Mm. So this um, slave trade was thriving, Mm -hmm. exporting Native Americans on maybe the same boats that were bringing Africans in from Barbados Mm -hmm. because we weren't acquiring, we, South Carolinians, weren't acquiring those uh, early slaves um, from Africa directly, they were purchasing them from uh, Barbados. Mm. So that's a, a big and I think important part of the book. And as, as you're talking, I can, you know, look at the map in my brain and I can see all of these shipping lines and, and you know, ways that uh, between Charleston and Barbados that these ships are going back and forth. And I just can't imagine how how 
intense of, of a travel that was. I mean, much less coming from, you know, Africa on a ship, but just, just you know, not knowing when hurricanes were going right. to happen and, and all the other kinds of issues that Very must true. have had to go through. And I, I might mention that um, the 1715 uh, Yamasee War mm. um, that involves the Yamasee and, and four other uh, major tribes, um, one reason, one obvious reason for that is uh, South Carolinians are conducting this Native American slave trade. Mm, mm-hmm. And that is obviously problematic if you're a Native American. Right. Um, that's not the only reason. Also, um, the traders uh, who were engaged in the deerskin trade uh, treated the Native Americans very badly. Mm. And so there were a, a potpourri of of reasons that Native Americans wanted to push the English back into the sea. Mm-hmm. Um, and I should mention that um, most South Carolinians did not engage in this Indian slave trade. Uh, that was monopolized by a relatively small number of men, uh, the former Barbadians who lived in Goose Creek. They were called the Goose Creek Men. They had a real handle on this, Hmm. uh, just the same as they had a real uh, leg up in the uh, Indian trade or the trade for deerskins. Meanwhile, most people in South Carolina were raising cattle and hogs and and, uh, working uh, timber products and and producing naval stores uh, to ship, in the case of uh, some products they could ship to England, like uh, lumber products, but um, their main trading partner w- was Barbados. And they were not getting rich doing this, but they were getting by. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the story here. Um, after rice is introduced, you see the the rice um, planters will start to coalesce and they will become uh, the richest men, not only in the colony, but by 1775, nine of the 10 richest people in North America live in South Carolina. Wow. And they're connected, many of them connected to rice and and indigo by that time, Mm -hmm. which is introduced around 1745. Um, But some of these men make money early on in the slave trade. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, Kind of changing gears a little, but one of the things I think about when I think of these kinds of um, history books is how you gather your information and your data. And so you had to probably look through a lot of primary resources. And how do you go about finding those or, or, or getting that primary resource information? You do a lot of hunting. Mm-hmm. Um, but fortunately, these days, uh, that hunt is is so greatly facilitated by the existence of search engines mm. and databases. Mm-hmm. Um, back when I wrote my uh, dissertation on Plymouth, there was no internet available to mm-hmm. me, and I spent countless hours in libraries and in archives. Um, you still need to use libraries and archives uh, Thank you for saying that. <laughs> <laughs> you still need to spend time in them, um, but even libraries and archives are making more available um, electronically, mm-hmm. digitally. And then, of course, you have access to um, so much material via the Internet. Mm-hmm. If you were interested 
uh, say, in the Indian slave trade, and you go to a search engine like Google and you put in Indian slave trade, you'll get a wealth of information. Mm -hmm. And if you are specifically interested in books and articles, you can go to Google Books and put in Indian slave trade in South Carolina, and that will bring up all the books on that topic. And you can go to uh, JSTOR or mm -hmm. American History and Life and find all these articles on it. So one way that the researcher's job is made easier is not only can you get uh, quick access to the best secondary works, mm -hmm. but let's face it, one thing historians do is they lean on each other, they, they rest on the shoulders of people who have gone before them, and if I'm looking at Alan Gillet's book on the Indian slave trade, um, I can see the primary sources he used, and then I can go dig into those primary sources myself. Mm -hmm. So between looking at um, looking on your own in archives and in libraries, but also looking um, in the bibliographies and, and footnotes or endnotes of uh, works on the topic that you're exploring, um, you can come up with an awful lot of information. And that's one of the reasons um, over the course of 10 years I've been researching, I'm still re researching mm -hmm. that workhouse book because that goes from uh, now the 1730s to 1865. Mm -hmm. There's a lot there. Um, but I've found, for example, uh, databases that would be old newspapers. Uh, you can spend as much time as you possibly want looking, just reading old newspapers that are available online. And um, that makes your job easier and in some ways harder. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, one of the neat things about doing this podcast is that our conversation has now become a primary resource. So, you know, if there are students out there listening, uh, interested in South Carolina history, especially early South Carolina history, now this conversation is a primary resource. So it's, it's something that's not, you know, been done before, um, just maybe in a little bit different way. Since this is Library Voices SC, and we always like to talk about libraries, and we've already talked a little bit about libraries and archives, do you have any kind of library stories you want to share? And it could be something personal or, you know, working on this publication. Sure, I do. Uh, um, as a student and then as a, uh, a researcher and a, and a history professor, I've spent a lot of time in libraries. Um, going back to when I was at Boston College doing my master's, um, I went into the uh, public library in Watertown, uh, the town I grew up in, and in searching around, I came across some boxes marked First Congregational Church. Well, this would have been the first church established by the Puritans in Watertown. And I rummaged through those boxes. They weren't set away. Uh, the public had access to these. And I found a minister's book in his very uh, cramped handwriting um, that was from the 1680s and 1690s. Wow. He talked about... Uh, he participated in the Salem witch trials. Oh, wow. Or at least he, he sat in on some of them. And here it was in his handwriting uh, in a, a small book in a box in the library. Wow. Um, I instantly called John Demos, who'd done a lot of work on Salem uh, and 
told him about this, and I think it ended up in the Historical Society. Um, my first published article was based on records that I found in the uh, library in Hoppington, Massachusetts, mm. um, a woman's uh, reform organizations and their notes from their meetings. Uh, so I used those. Uh, my master's thesis at, at Boston College was a comparison of library holdings north and south about the Civil War and in the, the years leading up to the war. Mm -hmm. So I looked at a lot of libraries and I ended up um, writing this thesis based on a comparison of the library in Lancaster, Massachusetts mm -hmm. and Charleston Library Society, wow. looking at their library holdings. Um, and I guess the one other thing I'd mention is just to, sh to show how libraries can reflect uh, local temperament and local history. Um, in Watertown, where I grew up, when you walked into the library, um, there was a, a bust on the left side of the entrance, and that was a bust of Senator Charles Sumner, hmm. um, prominent senator in the 1850s. And if you know uh, about the coming of the Civil War and the dispute particularly about um, Kansas, bloody Kansas, uh, Butler made a speech in the Senate uh, that led to him being beaten almost to death, caned wow. by Preston Brooks of South Carolina. <laughs> and if you go into the Carolinian Library, which uh -huh. I've done down at USC, the bust that you see when you come in is a bust of Preston Brooks. <laughs> so depending on whether you're up in Watertown uh, or down here in, in Columbia, wow. you can see the local hero or, uh -huh. or at least one of the better known <laughs> local figures uh, right there as you go Isn't in. Isn't that funny? And my mother was a Brooks, so I'm probably related somehow. <laughs> <laughs> you know, after he gave that whipping to Charles Sumner, uh, he, he, he continued until he broke his cane and then hundreds of people sent him a new cane. <laughs> <laughs> with messages inscribed in them like hit him again. Oh, wow. <laughs> crazy, crazy times. Um, so as we wrap up, what other kinds of projects do you have in the works? Well, as I've indicated, I've got a very big project. That's the Charleston Workhouse book. Mm -hmm. um, there's an awful lot of primary research going into that because uh, that's a topic that um, people have touched on, but nobody's really written an extensive work. And I guess part of the reason is because that is a story that goes from the 1730s up through the end of the Civil War. Mm -hmm. um, there's an awful lot of material there, and it covers a lot of historical ground and historical events. And so I still have probably four or five chapters to write on that, but I've got um, quite a few in the bag already, and, and I hope that um, maybe USC Press would, will be interested in publishing that when I finally get that done. Well, it certainly is a lot of fascinating information you've given to us today, and uh, folks will be able to, on our podcast webpage, uh, find the link to The Grim Years, Settling South Carolina, 1670 to 1720, uh, by the University of South Carolina Press, and also learn more about Dr. John Navin uh, with a link to his bio there. So we appreciate you being with us today. Thank you very much for having me. And thank you to our listeners. You can find Library Voices SC on Podbean, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio, or add us on your favorite podcast app. Our podcast website address is libraryvoices.podbean.com. 
We love hearing from our listeners, so please send us your comments and suggestions for future topics. Library Voices SC is the official podcast of the South Carolina State Library. So until next time, this is Curtis Rogers. Thanks for listening.